Jason Jolkowski disappeared in Omaha, Nebraska on June 13, 2001. From the moment his mother discovered her son was missing, she's never stopped looking for him. Along the way, she started one of the best-known organizations that exists for the sole purpose of helping families who have lost loved ones to disappearances. You'll hear her story today. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. define the word enough? How can it be explained? How can it be quantified? How do you know if you're truly doing everything you can to succeed? The truth about goals and the word enough is we're never sure we're quite doing enough until we reach that goal. As a writer, You can never be sure that you're doing enough until your book gets published. In fact, it could be just days before you become a bestseller that you think that you're never going to succeed at anything. Same way with the person maybe who's trying to lose weight. Until they actually lose that 20 pounds, even if they're at 19 pounds, they have doubt as to whether they're doing enough to get that extra 16 ounces off of their body. As a parent, you worry about your children. You worry as a parent whether you're doing enough to make sure that your children grow up to be good citizens and good people. And if they do, you say, I guess I've done enough. But in that case, it may take 18, 25, 30 years to find out. And then when you find out that you haven't, then maybe it's too late. The truth is, a large majority of people in their lives reach their goals, no matter if they're very lofty goals or very modest goals. To just succeed in something, whether it's winning a trivia contest or becoming president of a company, uh, people get enjoyment out of that. They get a lot of satisfaction, a lot of self-esteem from that. However, in the world of disappearances, it's quite different. The truth is, is that if a person has been gone, hasn't been seen by anybody for a year, two years, the odds of that case being solved are very low. And if a missing person is found after that time, that person is seldom alive. So most of the time in the world of missing persons and disappearances, the goal is never reached because what is the goal? The goal is to find that person and to find that loved one, that friend, that relative, just maybe even a stranger alive. That's the goal. So in essence, nothing ever seems to be enough. This is what makes this kind of world so difficult. People who uh, delve into it with both feet, living it, 24 7. It's a place where answers are hard to find, where sometimes an investigation creates more questions than answers. For those of us doing crime shows, technically we're not investigators. 
Few of us are out in the woods or on the streets. We're essentially reporters. We're raising awareness. We find news and we present it. And part of that means that we have to be objective with maintaining a bit of distance between us and the case. What it means is we don't necessarily live it. We care. We're concerned. Our emotions regarding all of these people, their families, the victims, whoever else, the friends, are all real, 100% genuine. But the truth is we report on a case, we do our best, and then we move on to the next one. So we reach our goal. For some people, it's much different. Kelly Murphy is one of those people. Since her son Jason vanished, her life has been consumed by not just looking for her child, but for the caring of families who have lost theirs. She is the founder of Project Jason. In this interview, you get to hear her tell her personal story of how she came to be a leading advocate for families. You also hear what it's like to live it every day. Hopefully, you'll also learn that the rest of us can do more to help people like Kelly. Maybe in another way... We should ask ourselves, are the rest of us doing enough? The following is a continuation of an interview I conducted with Kelly Murphy on the preceding episode of Unfound. I'm calling this entire episode Project Jason, a personal and public pursuit, and I give you the second half of my interview with Kelly Murphy. Let's move on then to Project Jason. These little bit of frustrations and, you know, the the police, the frustration with what they did at the time was that a lot did it culminate in you starting project jason was that kind of the way it started or you know what was the seed that really you know brought about project jason starting in 2003 it was my research on the internet once i got past the initial trauma because i i was in a daze i was in a fog uh, for quite some time but once i started to kind of come out of that trauma and I started to research on the internet and discover how many missing people there are and and how little help especially for missing adults there is and so few laws that help families who are missing you know help them and the the law enforcement work together to find the loved one all these different things it was just appalling it was amazing and appalling at the same time Um, then also it probably took, I would say, a, a good three months to get through all the initial, you know, questioning and um, all the, the things that they did do to tie up the loose ends. And, you know, there was a, a nice rush of media, so to speak, toward the beginning. And so after three months, that was all dying down. There really wasn't much more the police could do. And media had kind of gone away a little bit. And... So you're, you're kind of left holding the bag and not no one hands you a manual and says, hey, page two is emotions and yeah. page four is media and there just isn't any such thing. So my research on the Internet, I just felt like, like God was calling me, take these things you're learning and do something with it. Yeah. I didn't know what that something was supposed to be. One of the first things I stumbled across was the fact that there really wasn't any missing person laws in Nebraska to, to help aid with 
with that situation. And I noticed in Iowa that they had this uh, public clearinghouse on the Internet. You could see every person missing in Iowa and, you know, the awareness to know who was missing. That was just fantastic. And it's like, why don't, why doesn't Nebraska have that? It's like, you only have uh, the Amber Alert, which, uh, of course, is very limited. And so that was the first thing I did was I started to try to pass a law. I would never done anything like that before. And, but I started to work on it, Jason's law. And our, mm-hmm. our senator was very, very helpful and, you know, was honest with us, too. It's like, this may never pass. Um, it may take a few years. We, we just simply don't know. And it was going pretty well, but a couple of years have gone by, and I thought to myself, I, you know, I, I feel good about this. I think it's going to pass, but I don't think this is it. I don't, I don't think this is all I'm supposed to do is pass this law. I think there's something else. So then it came to me that I was supposed to start a nonprofit. So I spent the whole summer researching how do you do it, you know, the legal things and getting together a board and uh, your mission statement and, and all those things that go hand in hand with it, not knowing a darn thing about about such a thing or even imagining myself doing it, but I felt called to do it, and that's exactly mm. what I did, and that's, that's how Project Jason came, came about. Now, once you started it, was it uh, was it met with a, a rousing, you know, success, or did it take some time to get going to generate some momentum? Um, it took time because you know people didn't know me. I didn't really have a lot of training. I just had a missing son, and my experience I was gaining from from dealing with with my personal situation. Uh, I remember the first time that we had media that pretty much announced, you know, Project Jason had started, and I thought I was going to go to the mailbox the next day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was going to have this flood of letters and donations, and I kept going back to the mailbox every day, and there was absolutely not a thing in it, (laughs) nothing, no donations, no, no nice letters from folks, no nothing, and people... I guess they just don't understand the cause of the missing and, you know, why we need help. But so so that was kind of an eye-opener. That that pretty much remains that way today. <laughs> um, it's, it's very difficult to to get donations. There's so much competition with other nonprofits, and, you know, we can touch on this. Yeah, later, yeah, I'd like to talk about that a little <laughs> later. Along with the legal, you know, we talked about, we're going to talk about the the, the the loss angle as well um, maybe a little later I got it right here in the notes let's talk about for a second Kelly the actual statistics regarding missing persons in the United States as we've talked about already they're staggering let's get to that number what is that number um absolutely Ed and then thank you for asking so the NCIC is a law enforcement database that houses many types of crime-related information, um, but also missing persons and unidentified persons as well. Um, so here's the statistics, and, and I want the listeners to know that this isn't all the missing people because some of them never get reported and some of them don't get entered into the NCIC. So when you hear these numbers, uh, they're amplified. 
Mm-hmm. But what I did do was to gather statistics from 2007, 2010, 2012, 2014, which was the last year that they were available for the public. Um, when we had talked earlier, you asked me about statistics and and uh, perhaps might have mentioned you thought there was more missing persons than there used to be. And, and I said, actually, the numbers went down, but what we had talked about was we believe there's more awareness of missing persons. That's all true. That, you're exactly right. I did like bring it up. More. I did. So just to talk about the numbers, in 2007, the what's called the active record. So the active record is at, when it's done, how many people are still missing. So in 2007, that number was 105,229. The total entries, which is how many missing persons total were there entered that year, was 814 plus thousand. So that's like a, a whole gigantic metro area all disappeared. Wow. And even that 105,000 that's left, I mean, we can all think of cities that are 100,000. So imagine, if you will, every single person, all those intertwined lives in that city, mm-hmm. and they're all gone without a trace. No goodbye, no last hug, and, and that's what it's like for these families. So... That is a staggering number. Now, it has gone down. So in 2000, the active records, again, how many are left still missing? 85,000 plus. In 2012, it was 87,000. And 2014, it was down to 84,924. So all those active records, those numbers, are roughly down around 20% since 2007. Now, why is that? I I can't tell you. I don't know why that is. Um, The active entries in 2014 was down from, remember 2007 was 814,000 plus. So the the entries in 2014 was 635,000 plus. So again, down. Now, another thing that I tracked was juveniles missing versus adults missing. So in 2007, we had 63.68% juveniles versus 36.32% adults. In 2014, we have 51% juveniles and 49% adults. So, so there's a change there, too. Now... Listeners should know that there is no law that mandates missing adults have to be entered, which is really sad. Hmm. So, again, when I said at the beginning of of this segment, had these numbers, I I mean, just think how many are never even reported to police, ever, have the cases refused to be, especially in the case of a missing adult, um, and even if they take the case, are simply not entered. Now, it is required by federal law that ages 0 through 17 as a juvenile, that those are entered, and then due to a law that came about in 2003 called Suzanne's Law mm-hmm. that extended that age to 18 through 20. 
So people who disappear at ages 0 through 20 by federal law must be entered in the NCIC. But after that, there's no federal law. But the, the segments of, of the, the reasons to enter them is usually more like uh, a very suspicious or could harm themselves or could harm someone else kind of scenario or missing in a catastrophe or have like a known uh, mental illness or Alzheimer's or, or something like that. So the ones that are the we simply don't know type of cases, they by federal law don't have to be entered. Hmm. Do you know if disappearances, you know, with the statistics that they are, uh, correlate with any other sort of crime statistic or other police statistic that are out there. I'll give you another example. There, there seems to be a correlation between an increase in drug use in the general population and suicides. Okay, is there anything that that, that disappearances correlate to? Well, there could be. I don't know what that would be. Okay. And and again. Why are these numbers changed since 2007? That one I can't answer either. And it is interesting that there's more adults. I'm, I'm kind of hoping in a sense that the reason for that is that there's been a, a little bit more training and a little bit more awareness and, and so that more law enforcement agencies are making sure the adults do get entered as well. But again, it's mere speculation on, on my part. Mm-hmm. Could it also it's could a staggering number? Yeah. No matter how you look at it, it is. It is. It absolutely is. Uh, could there also maybe be? Could it also maybe be that um, the number has gone down because of social media? You know, what is there a role that social media plays? Just general social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that maybe has helped this a little bit. Is that possible? Well, absolutely, because, again, that is a vehicle for awareness, just like we talked about the, the 18 Well Angels mm-hmm. as a program. Where can you find someone who's a natural networker? So social media is a tremendous yeah. nat- natural network uh, venue, and so you have a significant amount of increase of awareness of missing persons simply from that one avenue. So it is very, very possible that there is a decrease um, due to that. What what it is, I don't think anyone can say. And and unfortunately, as we talked about on our prior phone call, mm-hmm. there are no statistics that say this resolved case was this scenario. So no one knows X percentage actually was a runaway, X percentage uh, was a mental illness situation. X percentage was escaping domestic abuse. I mean, you, you simply don't know. That's amazing. You know, I, I could see maybe if it was 1955 and everything is just foul cards and things, but in the 21st century, with all the computer power that we have, uh, you'd think that those things would get filed somewhere. You'd think that somewhere there would be a couple kilobytes of information, you know, with that on it, you, well, you think. Well, you also find interesting that in 2009 in the NCIC database, with, when you enter a case, that there was an option to tag the case with a 
sort of a reason, so to speak. So when you enter the case as law enforcement, you could say this is a runaway, this is uh, an Alzheimer's patient, or this is a parental abduction, or whatever it was. But there is still not full compliance onto using that, and it still doesn't tell the end of the story because you could tag them as a runaway when you enter them, but they really weren't. They were a homicide. Hmm. And that never gets changed. Not to my knowledge. Um, And, you know, listeners may want to know, if you just do a quick Google search and just type in NCIC missing person and then a year. So if you want to look at the 2014 statistics, just type in 2014. Uh, The first result you'll get is that link, and it gives you all the statistics. It also talks about that 2009 option so that you can see the percentages. They they also do tell you, based on the total number, how many um, law enforcement officers were we're actually doing that option to tag the case with a reason. But again, in the end, and I get asked this question all the time, what in the end really happened to these people, we, we simply don't know. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that would be, that seems to me, that would be a big hole in trying to, um, you know, fix the situation and trying to get a real handle on you know, what is actually going on with disappearances in the United States. Exactly, especially with the proliferation of human trafficking. I mean, wouldn't it be excellent to know, you know, this percentage of people was actually really just a runaway and this percentage was actually trafficked versus, you know, this percentage was um, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, suicide, homicide, uh, whatever. I think it would be a tremendous tool to help us know what's happening uh, with these cases so that we can put more resources uh, towards wherever they need to go. Yeah. I mean, we already, you know, for murder, they document, well, this person was shot, this person was stabbed, this person was strangled. You know, they do those types of statistics because you hear about them all the time, but they don't do it for disappearances. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, those numbers, uh, they're a little shocking. In fact, I can tell you there, there are times that I've said to myself, you know, I'm not one to believe in aliens, but when I hear the, see all these statistics about people disappearing, I suppose I might be able to be convinced that there might be people just getting beamed up somewhere as much as people seem to disappear, you know, and, and, and just are never seen again. And of course, you know everything about that. You know, well, it's just, it's just like Jason's case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's just so darn mysterious. It's like, what in the world could have possibly happened to yeah. such a nice kid, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, I'd like to go back to something that you mentioned before. What, you know, and I asked you the first time you talk, I just want to hear, I, I'm sure the listeners uh, want to hear it again. Um, what do you think made you different? I mean, there, as you know, we t- you talked about staggering numbers about the amount of people that disappear. And we know a lot of those people end up reappearing. But there's still a staggering amount of people who do disappear and are never found. And so they have parents. They have family. What, was, what made Kelly Murphy different? I answered the call. Mm-hmm. I 
mean, other people may be called and they don't answer the call because it's like none of us want to be in this. We don't want to be dealing with this and living this nightmare day after day, week after week, year after year. Um, It's it's also what's referred to as resilience. Yeah. And so resilience and uh, there's also another phrase, terminology, uh, post-traumatic recovery. And, and so, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was in a daze. I really, truly was um, for quite some time. And, and it's uh, post-traumatic recovery when you're coming out of that initial trauma and you make decisions, you know, I, I can't help myself anymore. There's nothing more I personally can do to find my son. It's going to take someone, you know, admitting something or finding him in some way shape or form and so uh, again I just answered the call uh, I want to ask you reg- along those lines um, I'll give you a little bit of my experience and I want to see if you have any insight into this I told you the first time we talked I've been interested in disappearances since I was a little kid I think I told you that um, you know as a little kid I'm 46 years old old now but I was six or seven years old. I can remember watching In Search of with Leonard Nimoy, which I think probably was in my lifetime the first, you know, experience hearing about things that disappear and people that disappear. They had Amelia Earhart on there and, and several other stories. And so I've, you know, followed this throughout the years. And of course, with the with the internet, the last twenty years, of course, that's been a, a boom for people who like to read about cases and maybe help out families, try to solve a mystery or something like that. And I run into so many defunct websites for missing people. The person is still missing, and at some point in the past, the family or a friend started a website. And then you go click on the link, maybe at the charlieproject.org or something, someplace, your site or wherever, and the site is dead you know, it's actually maybe even been hijacked by some, you know, Chinese company or, or something like that. Even though the person is still is still missing, why does that happen? Do do people uh, give up? Do they move on with their lives? I mean, is it something simple as they just don't pay the bill? And I know you deal with you know this on a daily basis. What is that? Well, it's probably a combination of different things, and, and oddly enough, I just ran into that two nights ago when I was reviewing a case file on our forum, and I'm like, oh, there's the link to the family site, and I clicked on it, and <laughs> it looked like it had kind of been kind of hijacked, and yes. I got off the page right away. But, I, I mean, it's probably a combination of different things. In some cases, it could be they didn't have the money to continue on with the site. In some cases, it can be a, a technical situation they didn't have someone who could keep it updated you know with the know-how or the comfort um you know and and putting updates on it It, it's it's a tiresome tiresome task because it it puts you back to the point of trauma and um so there there could be different reasons um is it is it just a is it just well i'm sorry i'm excuse excuse me is it just Maybe just a, a fact of people handling grief differently? Well, yes, and that's a part of my answer is that people do handle things differently. For some, that you know, keep, keep 
keep going back to that can be painful. Yeah. And, and so they, they'd rather not. It doesn't mean that they gave up. Mm-hmm. It just means that they don't want to go back to that moment of trauma and keep writing about it. And like in our case, it's like, what do you say? There, there's no new news. So, so what do you say? Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. I, I, I just see this contrast. You went in this one, you know, direction, you know, turning your grief into helping others. And then people over here, you know, it's, it's just, it's just very odd to me. I'd like to think I don't have any children, but if I ever do, and you know, something like this unfortunately happens, I would hope that I wouldn't want, I wouldn't let the website go defunct, but it's hard. You know, I'm not going to say, I know how you feel. I don't, you know, I, I told you how I talked to another mother of a disappeared person just a couple of days ago. Told her the same thing. I cannot put myself in your position. I'm not going to try to do that. So it's just, I guess, as a person on the outside, kind of, it's interesting how people have chosen to go in different directions, you know, handling, you know, uh, the missing, you know, the disappearance. Uh, well, and if you think about it, Ed, everybody is different. Yeah. And if you take any kind of traumatic situation, like let's say you get how you deal with it and and someone, you know, the next door neighbor gets the exact same kind of lung cancer, the exact diagnosis, how they deal with it may be completely different than how you deal with it. We're all individuals. And so, you know, in a sense, this missing world that we're in is not really different because we are different people. We're going to deal with it differently. We're going to have different philosophies and beliefs about, um, that trauma and, and our case and and what makes sense and what's best for us uh, right. in, in moving forward. Right. You're, no, you're totally right. You're totally right. Um, let's move on to what does Project Jason do? Um, let's put it maybe in the circumstances this way. There's a family out there that their son has disappeared. Um, how long – I mean – do they wait? How long do they wait before they might seek your site out or your assistance or something like that? How does this all work, and what do the services do you provide? What do you do? Well, the answer to how long do they wait really depends on the type of case that it is because if it's a missing child case, they should really truly seek the services of the larger missing child nonprofits that are around, like National Center for Missing Exploited Children. And, and there's quite a few um, respected nonprofits that deal with missing children only that are very large, have big budgets, and they can do a lot more. And they also do other services like search and rescue, things that we don't do that may be necessary in a particular case. Mm-hmm. So. In a missing child case, they should go that direction first. So when they get to the point, like we were at three months, where, hey, there's really not much more we can do. We need ideas of, you know, something to get the media's attention or things have died down. I don't have any support anymore, and, you know, I'm really feeling down, and I don't know how to deal with that. that that's when they can come to us mm-hmm. uh, because we'll help with, media and ideas, you know, to get the story back out there with the support. Um, so it's 
really we are awareness and we are support for that immediate family. So those are kind of the two cornerstones. So we'll help them with media. We'll help them with ideas. I just had a conversation the other night with a, a mother of a missing son about how to go about getting media attention for yet another year gone by. So practical advice, tactical advice, which covers things like uh, what we call the three identifiers, fingerprints, uh, DNA, dentals, what to do about those, making sure that the law enforcement has done everything that they can do, giving them advice on working with the law enforcement, and then the emotional support because, you know, they haven't been through this before. They may not understand, why do I have memory loss? You know, why do I feel this way? What, what can I do about it? Um, again, there's no handbook that really tells you how to deal with all those things. No, and these were things that you had to learn over, over the years in setting up Project Jason. And I'm sure you continue to educate yourself on this. This isn't, you know, there's no final test. This is an ongoing process. Well, absolutely, and that's why when you asked me the question about, you know, did we get this big running start out the gate when the organization started, no, because people didn't know who I was. I really had no training, but that was the thing, that mm -hmm. we sought out training, and I continually went to uh, different venues to get training. I've been through uh, missing person law enforcement training probably like, Oh, gosh, I've pretty much lost count. <laughs> I would say probably like eight times. And, you know, specialized training with things like DNA and the databases. And, you know, I, I wish that most law enforcement officers who dealt with missing persons had even got to go through that even once. Um, and then I've been to numerous, numerous training courses uh, dealing with the emotional aspect of things. Uh, which is partially how I got into doing the retreats that we do. Right. Tell, well, tell the listeners a little bit about those retreats. What, what goes on? Where, do you, where are some of the places that you, you take these people? And what goes on there? How many days? You know, things like that. We have an annual two-night, three-day retreat. And the purpose of the retreat is to help families of the missing understand the trauma so we teach them how does the brain react to this specific type of trauma how does that then manifest itself in the body with the symptoms that the person is experiencing because so many times these people actually think that maybe they are going insane when the when the reaction that they're experiencing is actually normal for this trauma so we teach them that and you, you simply can't believe the, the light bulbs that go off over their heads when, mm -hmm. when you see they they gain this understanding and they realize this situation is totally a hundred percent abnormal but yet the experience of what they're they're dealing with and, and feeling um, and the symptoms are totally normal for the trauma so we teach them about that. We teach them um, practical exercises like breathing and 
uh, what they call bilateral processing, things that are stress relievers specific to this trauma. We talk about all the different kind of emotions that they might be feeling, like guilt and anger and frustration, change relationships. I mean, this is something that just affects your whole life. Every possible facet of your life, it touches. And and so we help them with that understanding. We help them with the balance, with the search, and, you know, them, themselves. Um, finding their new normal is, is what I call it. What What is your new normal? Mm-hmm. Finding out what that is. And, and my ultimate goal is, is always that we teach the person how to find joy again. Because so many of these folks... They feel guilty if they laugh or if they go to a movie or do something fun. Like, they shouldn't be doing something like that, but but they should because they need to have that healthy balance with the part of their life that is theirs, that doesn't have anything to do with their missing loved one, and the search, and it needs to be a healthy balance. So we help them with all of those things. It's a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Uh, every year we have so many miracles, little miracles that happen, miracles of the heart and spirit from people that attend, and that light bulb goes off and they understand, and it changes their relationships with other people because they've gained so much of a insight into into those behaviors. So it's it's really a a wonderful experience. Is it is it primary? I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit of layman when it comes to this. Would would you call this primarily a, a group therapy type of thing, or is there a lot of maybe some one on one stuff that goes on as well? Well, I really wouldn't call it a therapy. There are classes, but these are not lectures, so it's not like the the folks attending sit mm-hmm. there and listen to somebody talk about these things. Mm-hmm. It's more of an interactive class where. You know, as our lead instructor, Dwayne Bowers, is talking that that people can say, oh, you know, hey, I experienced that, and, and what about this, and why do you think that I'm feeling this way or my body's reacting that way? So they have opportunities throughout the whole weekend of finding out everything they need to find out from a personal level about what's going on in their life as it pertains to having a missing loved one. So it's not really mm. a group therapy. We don't mm. sit in a circle and go around and take turns and, okay. you know, talk about what's, uh, right. what's what our, our worst fear is or, or any of that. Um, but it's, it's an opportunity to gain an understanding of, of the wide range of effects on one's life when this is happening and how to have the best life possible whether they're going to be going through it one more day, one more year, or or hopefully not the rest of their lives. So that's what we equip them uh, to be able to deal with. And it, there's also the point of bringing these people together and knowing that they're not alone. They get to interact with other people who are going through the same thing. And, you know, they probably make friends for life, you oh, know, as, as, as well. It, it really has become like an unusual family reunion. It mm-hmm. really has. It's been very interesting. Um, but, yeah, that's a side of learning and understanding. That's the number one benefit is you get to be with other people who understand. You don't have to say, 
I feel this way because you don't have to say the because part because they know. And sometimes you don't even need words and they understand. And it's such a beautiful thing to, to watch. Um, people who are new, they're a little nervous and, and we understand that. Mm-hmm. But within 10 minutes, <laughs> and mm-hmm. we had one of our new people this year say, you know, because I told him, I said, it won't be long and you'll feel like you've been there before and that you've been friends with these people a long time. And, and she said, you're absolutely right. I felt like I was at home and, and it was really a very calming, peaceful thing. So that interaction with other people is really, really important. Um, can you, obviously no names, but can you, you pass along maybe a story about somebody who's gone to one of these treats and maybe later, uh, their family member, somebody was found, you know, hopefully alive, of course, or you know, anything that pops into your head, you know, right at this second that you could pass along to the listeners. I, I realize that this, these seminar, you know, these retreats that you have are not about searching. You know, it's about emotional support, um, but, you know, a, a pleasant story to pass along. Well, there's a lot of stories because we've been told, you know, that we've helped save several marriages because the the couples gain a better understanding of, of each other and the different ways that, mm-hmm. you know, the male-female reacts to this. Um, we have unfortunately had folks who went to the retreat, and I, I know there was a young lady one year, and I think she'd been home maybe a couple, two or three months, and her missing mother was found deceased. But going to the retreat helped her, mm. helped her have those coping skills to be able to better handle getting that, that final and unfortunate answer. And then we've had folks who, you know, had a hard time holding a job and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. were traumatized to really do much about their missing loved ones and that we helped them to be able to get back to a normalcy in their life where then they, they felt good about themselves because they were no longer traumatized where they felt they, they could take no action in their case. So there's been just a, really a, a lot of wonderful miracles, and every year there's always multiple miracles come out of the retreat. It's, it's quite a blessing. How many people would you say, I mean, how many people working for Project Jason are there? How many family members uh, end up going to one of these? How, how, in the end, how big is, or is one of these get-togethers? small there could be anywhere from oh maybe 13 to 20 is kind of the average but Mm -hmm. that's a good thing I I really wouldn't want there to be 40 or 50 because we like to give everyone individual attention and if Mm -hmm. we had that many that would be very difficult to do so as far as staff goes there's usually there's a minimum of three and we've had as many as as five staff members there Uh, so those are the numbers it, and and people can go every year if they want, or how? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We have uh, people who have went almost every year uh, because, again, it has become for those folks wow. like a family reunion, and mm-hmm. they look so forward to it. From the minute it gets over, they can't wait for the next one. And that's great. That's great. Do, is this something that? Uh, if, do they pay for it? Do you, is there, 
you know, splitting of costs. I mean, how does, once again, this is for people who out there might be listening, family member that has a missing loved one. How, how does, how do the expenses divvied up? Um, we do our best to cover as many costs as we can, but as mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, we get so few donations. My mm-hmm. wish and my dream has always been that we would get enough donations that we wouldn't have to to charge okay. the families. This is the only thing that we charge families to do um, is to attend the retreat. And again, it's because we don't get enough donations to cover it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like for example, this uh, next year, a single person, the cost is going to be 250 and for a couple or two people who stay in the same room together, is 375 and that covers everything from the moment they arrive it covers all their class materials meals their room snacks drinks everything that you can think of so mm-hmm. once they arrive they shouldn't need to spend a dime on anything okay all right well now people know and we're in because of this show we're going to try to increase those donations so that's why that's one of the reasons that um, I'm doing this show to lend more um, you know, support to people like you doing what you're doing and, you know, try to raise the profile, you know, of all missing people. Um, let's move on, maybe going a little bit direction uh, of a different direction. And this was something that the first time we talked, one of the last things you said to me was you need to check this out. And this was this, I mean, it's almost three hours and I listened to every word of it. I want you to know that it, it, it seemed like it was almost three hours, all about psychics and their relationship with family members who have lost loved ones. Let's have that discussion now. I, I want to know. I want to tell you that what I listened to was fascinating. It was disgusting, but it was fascinating. Let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Well, after Jason disappeared, and, and this happens to pretty much every family of the missing, and in fact, I don't think there's ever been a family of missing who wasn't approached because Almost immediately upon finding out someone has a missing loved one, friends or family or coworkers, someone is going to say, have you tried a psychic or my next door neighbor is a psychic or my aunt's a psychic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's always an angle that people push. Uh, folks have the right to their own beliefs, yeah. but and, and this happened to us too. And remember, as I mentioned, I was pretty much in a daze yeah. that, you know, someone approached me and I pretty much sort of went along with it in, in my dazed and confused uh, world that I had at that point. Um, and families are so desperate. They are so desperate for the answers. They'll almost do anything. Yeah. And, and that's what happens is they're so desperate. They're not in their right minds. The logic has flown out the window, which... As a result of the trauma, we understand that. And so these folks come along, and sometimes they mean well and they don't understand and connect families with psychics or psychics approach them and do their dirty work, so to speak. Now, sometimes I think they know they really don't know anything and and Mm. that it's a malicious act. Sometimes I believe that these people have convinced themselves that they have some sort of a gift and they know. Um, so there's there's variance of the situation, but we do consider them to be predators. Yeah, um, I agree. Of police resources 
and these families are on such a roller coaster ride of emotions up and down you know one day it's like I think Johnny's dead the next day it's like I have hope I think he's alive it's, it's such a roller coaster compounded by things going on with law enforcement and other frustrations that they deal with and then you know these folks come along and make it worse because you know if somebody has 10 different psychics approaching them they're going to have 10 different stories absolutely you know, it's true not, it's not all going to be you know go to this uh gps point and you know there johnny's going to be it, it just doesn't work that way but these psychics surely, these psychics surely do know how to work on families' guilt, though, don't they? Oh, absolutely, and I know that you heard that horrible story of a family, you know, member guilting me into doing it. Even yes. though at that point I knew better, and and I was kind of out of the trauma, but they guilted me into doing it. And when the psychic realized, I'm not buying into your garbage. She turned on me and turned the family member against me and said that it was my fault because of my bad negative vibes. Yes. I mean, this is not, yeah, this is not a funny topic, but that's how it was put. That's what the psychic said. I, I was, I was so appalled. I mean, my mouth was just wide open. It's like, I can't believe one, you're doing this to me. And now I can't believe two, You've turned it around because you're striking out with your nonsense. <laughs> you, you're turning it around and making the family member angry at me. <laughs> it's like how how vindictive is that? How horrible, uh, yeah. you know, of a person do you have to be to do something like that? Um, but I wrote this whole blog series, uh, and I took my own stories, but I also took stories of many, many other families. Yes. Plus there's a lot of great information on there about how psychics do this, how they play their tricks and get people to believe that they think they actually know something. So there's a lot of really excellent information. And then it was turned into an audio That's what I theory. listened to. Yeah, that's what so I listened to, yes. You can read it or you can listen to it or, or both. But it is very informative, and I've had... I mean, it's been read by thousands and thousands of people, and I've had so many people, so many families thank me because they were just about, you know, going to make that decision to go that route when somebody pointed them to that, and they read it and decided not to, thankfully. Well, I can tell you this. I'm going to link to both the once this when this show is posted. Um, I'm going to link to both the audio and the, the blog version so people can really – I don't know if we can even do the entire thing justice in what we're talking about here because as I told you after I emailed you after I listened to it, it's, it's shame. I, I'm disgusted for my fellow man when I hear this stuff. And, and, and you know, we talk, you had asked me specifically the first time we talked, do you believe in psychics? And I said no. And you were very happy to hear that, and you know we had a short conversation about it. But I'm even more anti-psychic after listening to this, you know, after listening to this series. Yeah, just the horrible things that have happened to these families, and you know, you and I both know that there's someone out there listening that 
is like, well, my grandma is a psychic, and I know she is because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. But it's like, ask yourself, it's like, can you really prove or can anyone prove that that she knows whatever she says she knows as a result of psychic ability? No. And how many times have we had these somewhat famous psychics who claim they found someone and then later it was proven that there was one woman, and I can't remember her name, um, claiming to be a psychic and she claimed to find some missing person. And then later it was revealed that her boyfriend was a cop in that jurisdiction. So, of course, naturally, he leaked things to her. And sometimes it's a process of elimination. So if someone says, well, you know, the psychic found the person, it's a process of elimination, too, from where searches have taken place, which I think is what happened with this woman that, that mm -hmm. I just mentioned. Is, are, are psychics something you also cover at these retreats? Um, I have at times, I at the retreats, I generally give one class. And so um, even if, well, like this last one, for example, I gave my Awareness 101 class. And I, I do find a way to bring them up in mm. some way, shape, or form, mm. uh, which usually sparks the conversation. And most of the attendees have had the experience and, and know better, which we're thankful for. Mm. I thought it was uh, very interesting. You said a couple minutes ago that you know it's one of those things. Do they really believe what they're saying, or are they truly charlatans? You know, are they truly con men? And I'm I'm not sure it means I, I'm not sure if it matters either way because in the end they don't get any results. Um, wow. You know, which is the most important part. But you know. <laughs> It's it's just it's it's just I, we can't I, I, like I said I don't know if we can do it justice just in these minutes we're talking about it. People need to read the blog, and I'm going to link to the the series. I think it's an eight part series that's about twenty to twenty five minutes each, so it's almost three hours long, and it's worth every minute. You know. Oh, thank you, and and definitely, and you know the other thing I didn't mention earlier is sometimes they also may be mentally ill. Yeah. So, so they may be purposely misleading. They, they may have made themselves believe that they had some sort of power and they may be mentally ill, which I, I feel like I ran into all those types in, in my personal journey. Mm -hmm. You know, as I was listening to it, and this is once again not to throw necessarily a comedic angle to this, but as I was listening to it, I, being a Seinfeld fan, I, I think of that one line that, George Costanza said at one point, it's not a lie if you think it's true. And that's kind of the feeling that I get with these psychics is that they believe it. They're not fooling people. They believe it. So, you know, it's up to the people, these family members to know that these people don't know what they're talking about because the people themselves, some of them actually do think they're telling the truth. Well, and one easy way to to realize that it's all a sham is there's a number of magicians who have little uh, mm -hmm. YouTube videos of them pretending to be a psychic, but it's, it's all magic. Yeah. But, but they're, they don't claim to be a psychic, but in these videos they show where they're talking to someone and you would think if, if you didn't know what was going on, that they really were. So it, it's really, a magician's trick, so to speak.
Yeah, and I don't, and it's funny you bring that up because you may not know this about me, but when I lived in Las Vegas, I was a stage manager for a magic show. And it was through that probably also that I became very anti-psychic because I saw these men and women do this every night, seemingly read people's minds and do things like that. And you know it's just a show. It, it, you exactly. Know, it's, it's just a show. Um, let's move on, but I think this is a good segue from the, from the psychics into getting back to what we talked a little bit more about law enforcement. And, you know, I even have in my notes uh, here, you know, your, you know, your status within the missing partisan community, what is the, the relationship between law enforcement and, you know, the families of the missing right now? Would you say it's, it's healthy? And the direction I want to go with this, probably along the psychic route, is that a lot of these times the police, you know, they never turn, for example, any of these psychics down. So it's almost lending credibility to these people. Is well, that it? the police have to take a lead no matter whether it's coming from someone who's clearly psychotic or who says, hey, I'm a psychic or just some ordinary citizen. It's, mm. it's still a lead, and they still have to treat it as such and, you know, look at it as like, is this viable in any way, shape, or form? Is it worth looking into? Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I know I mean, that's what the facts are, but, yeah. They're, they're, they're bound to checking into each lead because even though the psychic may say, I have this psychic premonition that Johnny's over here, if it makes sense to the police and it's like, you know, that's possible mm-hmm. and they check it out, I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that um, if it's a viable lead. And that's the same thing if it came from, you know, someone who was uh, clearly not mentally stable. But but there is a line between what's viable and what's not. And, and I'm not in law enforcement, so yeah. I'm not going to be able to tell you how to draw that line. Um, but, but yes, psychics can waste a lot of, of law enforcement time. And I know there was one in the area who had said if you go behind this building and you go over here and you dig in this pile of rubble, you're going to find him. Well, because it was viable in a sense, they, they went ahead and did it and obviously didn't find a thing. Um, but I think if I'm not mistaken, I remember a story where uh, they drained a whole lake. <laughs> that had to cost an awful lot of money. Yeah. And, and of course, there wasn't anything there. So all because of a psychic. All because of a psychic. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not in law enforcement, so I can't tell you how to figure out where that line is. Um, but that's up to them to figure out where that line is. But but there's plenty of times like that where mm-hmm. the law enforcement time is wasted, whereas they have plenty of things that they could be doing and, you know, typically plenty of of other leads and people they could be questioning and uh, other things that they could do uh, for the case that, that makes sense. And you mentioned this earlier that you think that the the policemen are not adequate. I mean, we've talked about the overwhelming, the staggering number regarding disappearances, but you, you maintain, and I, I, I think that training for police officers could still be much better regarding disappearances. Well, absolutely, because I've talked to many people 
who work with law enforcement training and and over and over I keep hearing the same story and, and the story is in initial police training sometimes there is no missing person training sometimes it may be 10 minutes how do you fill out a missing person form but there is nothing comprehensive there's nothing where they go through you know step one two three and and so forth there's absolutely nothing uh, there, there is law enforcement training out there. Some of it's free, mm-hmm. but it's a budgetary thing. And there just isn't the budget to send all these officers. There also at, at sometimes seems to be kind of a revolving door of the officers are assigned to this kind of work. And, you know, next thing we know, they're getting assigned to burglaries or rapes or, or some other type of crime. And so if you got them trained, now, now you've, lost, you've lost that in a sense. Yes, so, missing, missing persons isn't exactly like, you know, like homicide, where it seems like if somebody, a, you know, a, person, a man or woman becomes a homicide detective, they'll be in that position for 20 years maybe. Maybe. Not, not the same case in missing persons departments. Well, I've been told by law enforcement that missing persons is almost like the bottom of the barrel, like the least glamorous, so to speak, job in law enforcement, the job that that nobody wants. And, I mean, I know it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. It's like in our case, it's so mysterious. It's like a needle in a haystack. It's like, where do you go from here? And there's so many. Yeah. It's like you, you couldn't possibly even begin to keep up on them. Do you find it, you know, odd, though, that, I mean, as, as I think I told you the first time we talked, within, you know, the Internet community, that, t- that you know, a lot of regular people out there like myself who have no law enforcement background, you know, you have people who I know go on, on every night – and we'll go to uh, you know the, the Doe Network or something like that, where there's you know the descriptions of bodies that have been found that haven't been identified, and then they'll go to sites where there are missing people, and they'll spend hours going back and forth trying to you know a missing person with an unidentified body. I know I'm I'm gonna talk to people. I've done it myself for hours. People you know become obsessed with this, trying to solve this, and then on the other hand, you hear that. In the police, it's like one it considered to be one of the lowest departments. It's it, it seems to feels to me like quite a contrast between how the public looks at it and how law enforcement looks at it. Well, and, and again, it's a manpower thing and it's a training thing. So yeah. if you took away those two issues, manpower and training, I, I think that you would find more of a similarity with the the folks that are out there that you know, spend the hours scouring the sites looking mm-hmm. for potential matches between the missing and the unidentified. Yeah. Right. Okay. Just, I just thought that there was an interesting contrast there. Um, uh, let's go in this direction uh, regarding law enforcement. Um, how do you feel about, uh, in your position, for – the public to have more access to records after a certain amount of time. You know, you go on, you know, there's disappearance cases that, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. And should that information, you know, be out there more for the average public to try to solve or 
Because, you know, police will tell you, well, we need to protect the, the integrity of the case if something pops up. Any any feelings on that? Well, I I understand where they're coming from. And, you know, in any given case, there could be information that, you know, 10 years later, this is okay to now share. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't mind if they did share it. But again, I'm not in law enforcement, so yeah. it's difficult for me to make some kind of a blanket statement of, you know, if a case is 10 years old, you know, 10% more information should be released because it, it's it's a case-by-case basis. Yeah. In a, in a certain case, maybe no information should be released. And in another type of case, maybe 80% of it could be released, that it would be helpful. Yeah. Um, I personally don't see that happening. Yeah, I'm right. not opposed to it. Now, if law enforcement wanted to release more information about Jason's case, you know, obviously I'd want them to discuss that with me, um, you know, and work on that together. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, that's a hard question to ask, and, and I really do think it's, it's a it-depends kind of answer. I, again, I'm mm-hmm. not opposed to it, and... Mm-hmm. In many cases, it could be very, very helpful. Right. Fair enough. Um, you had mentioned before, you, you know, raising money, and there's a lot of – let's move on to this. You have you talked about raising money you know, and how it's difficult, and uh, you know, it's – what you – I think you used the word, it's quite competitive. Um, is there a lot of you know, working together and networking between what you do and some of these other organizations that kind of also do what you do? Or is it, you know, don't get on my turf, don't get, I won't get on your turf, you know, type of situation? Well, there, there is a combination. I, there are certain organizations that we refer families who come to us to, mm-hmm. um, but we do have our guidelines about how we do that and who we do it as far as who we give reference to, which would be that we have established relationships with them. So in other words, we know the people personally, we know their ethics, we know their philosophies, they jive with ours, but also very importantly, we know that the people at that particular organization have training. So when they claim that they can do something, they actually can do what they claim they can do. Because the worst thing would be to tell a family of a missing uh, you know, get help from this organization over here, and they have a bad experience. Okay? You know, that's not certainly the direction that that we want to go. We want every experience that they have uh, in conjunction with working it for us to be as positive as it as it can be, because it's it's just a very hard life, and they're on such a roller coaster anyway. You definitely don't want to add to that. Is this something like, um, you know, maybe something that maybe people are a little bit more familiar with? Is something like breast cancer awareness? You know, Susan G. Komen organization raising money for breast cancer awareness, and of course, they're competing, I guess, against you know some other awareness for some other type of cancer. And there's only so much money to go around. Even though they're all great causes, people only have so much money, and they can only donate to you know certain causes so much per year. 
Is it, is it kind of the same thing in what you're doing? Are you competing well, against the dollars that are, you know, could be going to some other organization against yours? Or is it just a matter of possibly getting $10 here, $20 here, uh, you know, from, you know, people? Well, I think there's a couple things going on is that you have the, first of all, there's so many nonprofits out there and so many wonderful, wonderful causes. So you only have so many dollars to go around. And when you get into nonprofits that, you know, let's say, let's use examples of like they have something to do with Alzheimer's right? or they have something to do with cancer, probably almost every single person listening has had some experience with both of those. So maybe they lost a grandparent from Alzheimer's or, um, you know, a sibling or a parent from cancer. Almost everyone has that experience or maybe even, you know, recovered from cancer themselves. So their tendency is going to be to want to donate to something that they have a a sort of a, a kinship or, um, attachment to in a sense they know how important it is for the funding for those types of organizations and I understand that so you have that situation but then with missing persons I I think you add the element and we talked about this Mm -hmm. the element of prejudice and not understanding so there may be a percentage of people out there who say missing people most of them want to be missing, and I don't yeah. understand why we need to help. Yeah. And so they're not going to want to donate. Another thing is you have missing children versus missing adults. So a missing child is going to be capture your heart much more so than a missing adult because a missing child, you know, you feel there there's definitely a more vulnerable situation and you know, yeah, and it's not like a child ran off. It was, you know, abducted. You know, it, you know, tugs at your heartstrings more than yeah. a missing adult would. And and again, there's the prejudice of, oh, they probably want to be missing. But the bottom line is whether the person ran away or is willfully missing, the heartache of the families is exactly the same as it is no matter whether they ran away or they were trafficked or whatever the scenario is. It's the same. Yeah, that's a great and point. so all these families, no matter what type of answer they're facing, deserve the answer. Right. That's but a, that... yet it's, it's very difficult to, to kind of hammer that point home. It's like, why do you need help? Well, like I said earlier, I've always had the dream that we wouldn't have to charge families for the retreat because we got enough money. Mm -hmm. And boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if none of them had to find transportation either that, you know, we could fly them all in or buy them a bus ticket or put them on a train and, and all that good stuff and serve, you know, as many as that we could possibly, you know, take and, and handle well. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that I would love to be able to do mm-hmm. with funding, too, and, you know, help folks and buy them posters. And, and there's just a, a myriad of things that, that one could do, but that you can't do when you're strapped. And we have operated on 
um, a very tiny budget for the duration of of the of the organization's life, mm-hmm. and and it's really sad. Um, like I said, that first time we had media, I thought I was going to find a flood of letters in the mailbox, and absolutely none. And even when we've had large scale media, I thought, oh gosh, you know, we were on the the Fox News. You know, I, I'm mm. going to get at least something, but no, there there wasn't anything. So it's it's hard to really pinpoint it exactly, but that's my thoughts: is that you have the competition with organizations that everyone can relate to directly, yeah. and then you do have some prejudice and you do have some lack of understanding of uh, why do they need money. Yeah, I, I think they. I think you're onto something there. Unfortunately, I, I really do. Um, tell me a little bit about Eighteen Wheel Angels. What is that? Well, Angels actually was one of the first programs that I developed when uh, Project Jason was new because I was trying to think of something with awareness. It's like, okay, what's a way that we can spread the word about these missing people? And I remembered when Jason was missing and I had made a website for him and I started to hear from people all over the country who, who stumbled across his website. And I always remember this email from somebody in Florida and they were a truck driver, and they said, I just wanted to let you know, you know, my heart goes out to you, and I printed some posters of Jason, and I take them around with me and hand them out and post them in different places I go. And I was I was so amazed. It's like, how could this person clear across the country? They never met Jason. They never met me, and they're doing this wonderful, kind thing, and it just really gave me so much hope. You know, people out there care, and it was so inspiring, and it just made me feel really good and and, and happy that people cared about someone they never met. Mm-hmm. And so that's how 18 Well Angels came about, because I remembered that, and I thought, okay, here's a way to connect with truckers who are natural networkers. They go all over. They see a lot of people. They see a lot of different places. And so it's just basically a program where we encourage them to print posters of missing persons and hand them to other truckers, you know, who are going somewhere mm-hmm. else and put them up in establishments, um, you know, put one on the back of their truck or somewhere that makes sense and, and just help spread the word. And we actually have a, a media partner who every month, and, and they have these little free trucking magazines that you can find in truck stops all over the country, but in every issue there are two different um, featured missing persons, and there's two different magazines, so that's a total of four people. And their circulation, I believe, is maybe like 250,000. So that's, wow. you know, potentially 250,000 people that see those missing persons and, and have that awareness. And, and that's what it's all about because, you know, one of the keys is getting the word out there and how do you... How do you do that in a mass way when you really don't have any money? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so that's, that's how that came about. You know, it caught my eye because uh, both of my brothers at one time or another in life were truck drivers. Uh, my brother Michael was a truck driver, I'm going to say, for about three or four years. But my brother Brian, Brian was a truck driver for about 17 years. And uh, I actually got to ride around with him a, a few times in his truck and 
Um, the truth is in these, you know, the truth is that truck drivers do pick up hitchhikers and uh, truck drivers, you know, see a lot of things out there and uh, they see a lot of things at truck stops and they do a lot of talking and, and uh, I thought that was a, a really good way uh, to raise awareness uh, about that because of some of the things, once again, my experiences with my, mainly my brother Brian, and then seeing this 18 uh, Will Angels idea that you came up with. Now, that's a great, you know, part of our culture to be able to tap into. Well, it's worked really well, and I mean, it's a program that we've had all these years, and it is still going strong, and, you know, it's a wonderful thing when we hear about, you know, these truckers are putting out posters and, um, you know, letting law enforcement know if they think they've seen a missing person, and, and that's what it's all about, because all it takes is one. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, I think that because of uh, truckers, they they do end to run into quite a few runaways, and you know, young yeah. people looking to when, you know leaving on their own, looking to get away, and they think, well, you know, these trucks are going all across the United States. Maybe I can, you know, hitch a ride on one. And you know, you, you went, I think, right to um, a place where you know those you know those types of people you know are going to help you out because of who they do run into. So I thought that was a great idea. Um, let's talk about legislation. What are you doing? Um, what's Project Jason doing in, in that arena? We have a program, and that was um, also one of the earlier on that, that came about because I had went to a, a national conference in Philadelphia where they introduced this legislation that was meant to be passed on a state-by-state -state basis to help with missing person cases. And... A year after being exposed to that at this big conference, I started to check around thinking, I wonder what happened with that, because that was really an awesome piece of legislation, and found out that nothing had happened with it. Nobody was doing anything with it, and I was astonished. And that's when it, it came to me. It's like, we can start this campaign for the missing and take that law and tweak it as we gain a better understanding of what should be the law, what will help the most, and try to get it passed state by state. And that's exactly what we, what we did. And we have had it passed in numerous states with great success. Um, one, of the, one of the states that passed it, and, and what I do is I, I mentor people who live in those states because obviously I can't pass it as not being a mm. citizen. But one of the last states that passed it, the, the law enforcement, they read it and they actually understood what it was trying to do, what it was trying to accomplish. And even before it was completely signed into law, they started to, to do some of the, the mandates in the law. And actually, as a result of doing these database-related tasks, uh, found 66 people. <laughs> before it was even a law, wow. and that was so amazing, just so very amazing. And the basics of it, because it can be lengthy to explain the whole thing, mm -hmm. but it, it covers what kind of data do you gather, 
when you get a missing person case from the law enforcement perspective, of course. Um, what, what do you do? What steps do you take if they're still missing after 30 days? And then uh, making a determination at the very beginning if they are what we consider high risk or not and taking steps based upon that. So that's one part of it is the law enforcement reaction and the gathering of data and entry of specific pieces of data into law enforcement databases is very helpful. The other part of it gets into what do you do with an unidentified body? So if you if you have one in your jurisdiction and you know the efforts to identify them have failed, what do you do now? So that's when we get into talking about the three identifiers, which as I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier are dental records, fingerprints, and DNA. So of course, on some identified remains, you're not going to have dentals or fingerprints, depending on the condition of the reins, you, you may just unfortunately have bones. So DNA would be your only recourse. So the, the premise is that you definitely do not destroy remains without gathering any of the three or all of them if you can. And the key is putting it into the proper, the results of the analysis into the proper federal databases so that it can match against the same information of missing persons. So we can use DNA as an example. So my DNA is in CODIS, which is the federal oh. DNA database right. for Jason. And so if a body was found somewhere and they took the, the DNA from it and did the analysis and they put that DNA in CODIS, it would match and then we would find him. But there are many places where the law is not passed and things happen. They don't do this with the bodies. They bury the bodies and in the worst cases have even cremated bodies. So you know when that happens, it's all the family gone. will never find out. Yeah, it's all gone. Yeah, it's, you know, it could be like, okay, so if, if Jason was found in another state, and they cremated his body or buried him, you know, it's very possible we'll never know without doing those critical steps. So in states where that has passed, that should not happen um, if, they're following, if they're following the law. But you know, people don't realize that. It's like when I talk to reporters about it, they think it's automatic. It's like it's not automatic. You have to mandate it by law. So that it happens, so that if it's at all possible that you have a match instead of this family living their whole life not knowing when they could have known something. So that's the basic premise of the law, is those two aspects of it, the three identifiers, the gathering of that information, the entry into the proper databases to make a match, and then the, the proper steps with the, the law enforcement on the missing person side. So again, we mentor people to pass that in their state. And it's really wonderful the states where it's been passed because when I get a new case and it's one of those states and they say, you know, this and this and this is not happening, then I can show, show them the law and, and say, 
you know, but, but look at, you know, section three, line seven, and it says right there that this action must be taken. Um, unfortunately, a lot of law enforcement, because they're not trained, don't realize sometimes that the laws exist or, or the mandates specific to that law, and so things don't get done that should be done. That goes back to training, right. how important law enforcement training is. Right. If the, yeah, if the law enforcement doesn't know the law, then how are they supposed to follow it, I guess? Correct. And, and that's why when we coach families and, and they're in one of those states that, that has the law, that we can tell them, per your state law, these are the steps that must be taken, and, and that helps a great deal. The, I think the, the, the normal perception would be that legislation for missing people would be you know, somewhat of a, a bipartisan uh, topic. But as you said earlier, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get this, you know, uh, you know, this legislation through to getting passed. Is that just part of the system? Or have you found that sometimes, you know, even a, a law like this, which you would think everybody would be for, sometimes gets, you know, mixed in with other things that tend to be much more divisive? Well, I think we've had a couple issues with passing this one, and most of the time it's been a budgetary thing. Now, the law as it stands doesn't really have a huge price tag, but when some of the officials look at it, like especially when it comes to the part about the DNA and doing the analysis and entering in the CODIS, um, DNA analysis is not cheap. No, and right. They right. don't know about NamUs, and they don't know about um, the Center for Human Identification, and so they don't realize we we don't have to use our our DNA lab if they have one. Uh, we were trying to pass it in Florida, and had come up with uh, some folks there thought they had to build a whole other DNA lab to the cost of who knows how many millions of dollars, and it's like. No, you don't have to do that because NamUs and Center for Human Identification, which is one of the, the largest, most progressive labs in the country, will do it for you at no charge. So, so budget has been an issue, and, and once they got past that, um, then it was fine once they get to understand, because that happened in Minnesota as well. So budget can be an issue, and then um, we have had situations where if the sponsoring senator was from one party and the Senate or House was overwhelmingly the other party, it, it seemed like they didn't want to pass it simply because it was coming from a senator from the opposite party, which is so wrong because yeah. this has nothing to do with parties. No. I, I mean, people of all sorts of affiliations go missing. Right. And so oh. I find that to be incredibly sad because it should never be about anything like that. It should be about what is good for all the people and what is needed for all the people. And the other thing about this, too, is if this were to be passed, it, it still <coughs> solves crimes and prevent more crimes from happening. Because if you solve missing person cases, 
some of them may be connected to other missing person cases and other crimes. So if you solve them and find the criminal and, you know, put that person behind bars, then you have less crime overall. And yeah. I, I think, too, that that whole big picture, sometimes they don't see that. And they see it as, this is a lot of work. But <clears throat> it's like, if you do all these things in the beginning, which maybe look like a lot of work, you're going to have more cases solved, which actually in the end means less work, means more crime solved, therefore also less work, more criminals behind bars, therefore also less work as a result of that, and a safer community. Isn't that the point? Yeah. And a lot of these police departments would get a lot of cases off their books, too. Exactly. That's what I mean. It's like a little more work in the beginning means less work in the end. Do you, you had mentioned before about, you know, the, you know, the, the problem with, with raising money, you know, because, you know, how many people does, you know, missing people really affect and, you know, other causes. It sounds to me like among politicians, it, it maybe is kind of the same thing. It's like something along the lines also of, well, a lot of these people are missing. They're probably missing on purpose. Then, you know, why are we going about passing a law if these people want to be gone anyway? Is is there that – so the, do politicians maybe have the same attitude as a lot of regular people do? Well, and you're absolutely right that that can be a part of it. And, you know, that's a part of the, the problem that you generally never find out. It's mm-hmm. like how many of them have that prejudice of – why, why do we need a law like this? Because if you don't know missing persons, you, you really don't understand it. You don't yeah. understand the need, and it's a constant it's a constant education process, you know, that, that we've been going through all these years and, you know, still uh, apparently need yeah. to reach more people uh, to want to help and to have this understanding of the extreme difficulty you know, it's it's hard to lose a loved one no matter how you lose them. But if someone passes on because they, you know, died in a car accident or they had cancer or what, whatever the reason is, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible tragedy. But you do go through stages of grieving and you do find a way to move on. But the thing is, you know the answer. You're not living in ambiguous loss. And the trauma that doesn't go away ever, uh, which is what these families have to to deal with, mm-hmm. you can't go through stages of grief when you don't know what the final answer is. You, you can't. Mm-hmm. So you remain in trauma. As uh, I live in Florida, um, did that law end up getting passed in, in this state? After the confusion, after they got through the confusion of how much it was going to cost? Um, A variant of it, because when we coach families, you know, we gave them the leeway to make changes that they wanted to make. So it's it's not the complete law. It's it's a variant of it based on what those families wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And how many states uh, has a version of this, this va- a variant of this law? How many states have passed this variant? A variant. Um, I should have looked that up, but I believe it's about ten to twelve. Okay. Okay. Um, 
Anything else? Any other legislation that you're working on? Is is that the main one right now? Or uh, I'm guessing that if you had your way, there'd probably be other things that you're working on if you have the time and, and money. But do you have other ideas in your head for additional laws maybe down the road? Well, I have thought about um, seeing if we could just pass the section of it that pertains to the three identifiers. Mm-hmm. And again, that would be both on the missing person side and the unidentified body side. Uh, and just trying to to do that part of it. Because I, I really think that that will solve so many cases that are out there. Like I said, in, in the one state, they solved 66 without the law even being in place. Um, I also worked with the law enforcement agency who, who wasn't aware of all these databases and different things that they could do and shared information, and they went about working on these things and solved 16 cases, and they were a smaller smaller jurisdiction, uh, a city, not a state. So, so that was pretty good. Yeah, so it does work. It does work. Yeah, it works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It works, and you would think that with with these results and you have that these, whatever the rest of the how many states, you know, 40, 38 more states, you'd think they'd see those results and, you know, they'd, they'd pass it pretty quickly. But that's not I how... I think so. It, it, it's just not an easy thing, and again, I think people read the legislation and dollar signs start to go through their head, and, and you know, they just think there's not that great of a need, and... Mm-hmm. There's so many laws, you know, they're trying to pass all at once that, you know, are very valuable and very needed. So it almost goes back to the the vying for the charitable dollars, that kind of competition. So it's yeah. almost like a competition of laws as well. Right, right. Um, what can my listeners do? I mean, obviously you've talked about raising money and, and awareness and everything else. If People want to give you a donation. How do they do that? If they want to help out in, in any other way, how do they do that? You know, what's the contact numbers, addresses, emails? Uh, I'm sure the listeners want to know that stuff. Please give it to them. Well, sure, you bet. It's really simple. If you just go to the website, projectjason.org, and if you scroll down to the very bottom... Uh, is the the snail mail address so you know folks can do the old-fashioned thing and and send checks if they wish and there are donation buttons there's a how can I help page uh, that's pretty clearly marked at the top of the site that uh, gives them choices of you could do a a PayPal donation or go through a, a very good organization called Network for Good and go that direction uh, or do the old-fashioned mail-a-check, which that still works for us. Mm-hmm. And as far as other things that people can do, it's, it's really, again, it goes back to awareness. So, you know, we encourage people to to peruse the site and look at all the missing people, whether they want to, you know, look at who's missing in their state or their area. And, you know, on our website we have a poster that we've made for every single registered case uh, that is at the top of, of the information link for that person. And so even if someone's been missing a number of years, we still encourage them, print out posters, 
you know, take them to your, your, where you work, put them in the break room, take them to other businesses. Even if they won't put them up, you know, in the windows or doors, ask them to put them up in the break room. Uh, distribute them in any way, shape, or form that, that works for you because all it takes is this one person. And, you know, share that information. Friends, try to get other people active in, in the cause, whether it be uh, disseminating posters or, or donating. It's, it's just so, it's so needed, and I, I can't tell you how, how touching it is for these families to, you know, see that other people are helping. Like in the story I told about the truck driver in yeah. Florida. Yeah. And I got an email the other day from a um, a border guard in Texas. Huh. And she told me that, you know, somehow she learned about Jason's story a long, long time ago. She didn't say how. But that all these years... She's been praying for him, and that as people cross the border and in her her everyday work, she looks for his face. Wow. And how beautiful is that, 15 years later, that someone who's never met Jason or, or me does that. That's absolutely beautiful and is a, a ray of hope. That has to give you chills. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. That's the kind of email I like to get. It, it just really brightens your day. And um, on the website, we do have a place where you can see how many posters have been downloaded for each person. And that's kind of a nice, good feeling that the families that we serve can see. You know, Johnny's had his poster downloaded 2,000 times or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. it's, just a, it's just a good feeling to know that that people are out there willing to help. Great. Well, I'm going to do what I can to get my listeners to help as much as possible. Um, you know, the, the, the excellent thing uh, about the Internet is we do this interview, we do this show, it gets up there, and it never goes away. You know, and you know, people will be able to find this show in many different places well after you know, it's played for the first time. And they'll come across Jason's story, come across your story, what you're doing, and you know, hopefully, we'll just run across the right person. And this, and this can all get solved. It can get resolved. It, everything's possible. I, I mean, we didn't we didn't get into stories, but mm-hmm. if, if you want, I can share a couple stories of Please. cases with you. Please. Please. So, there was a case of two little girls that were parentally abducted and the mother was the one who abducted them and and she wasn't very stable. One of these girls had a severe medical condition and the the great fear was that she wasn't getting proper medical care, which could be fatal. Mm -hmm. Um, We have always had a philosophy that the missing person is more than the information on a poster. They're, they're more than a hair color and an eye color and a height and weight and so forth. They're a person. And so we've always encouraged families to share their stories, to share the difficulty of, of having a missing person, to share you know, what the missing person is like um, as a person, what are their hopes and dreams and so forth, to share that emotional angle. So with this particular family, 
uh, we were able to get the father to share the story of these sweet little girls. Well, lo and behold, we had that out there on our site, and a man, oh, I think about five states away from where he lived, he, he saw this, and he had seen these two little girls somewhere, I don't know if it's his neighborhood or near where he worked, and he just thought something seemed funny about the situation. He remembered them, and then he wondered, I wonder if they're reported missing, and he went and researched on the internet looking for their faces, and he found them in two places. The only websites they were listed on was the National Center for Missing Exploited Children and our site. Wow. He did not want to get involved, which a lot of people do that. And so for quite some time, he didn't do anything about it. But Hmm. he kept going back, and he kept reading that emotional impact story that I had asked the father to write. He kept going back and reading that, and it wouldn't, it would not let him go. And he finally told. So lo and behold, it was definitely the girls, and they were recovered as a result of this man having read that story wow. and getting involved. That is that's that's amazing. That that uh, that kind of story probably makes it all worth it, right? Oh, absolutely. And then another story, and, and I'll be brief, but mm-hmm. so there was a, a missing mentally ill adult man, and he'd been missing for 12 years. And I think he was only listed on maybe two or three websites, not very many. And one day, I got an email from some woman in Florida, and she said, I... I think I know this missing person. I, I think he is someone that my family has kind of taken in from time to time and helped. But I, I think it's this missing person. And I, I read the email <laughs> and I kind of thought it was someone pranking me. Yeah. <laughs> because it just seems so, I don't know, so unlikely. And so we, we have some people check it out. And believe it or not, it was him. <laughs> wow. And he was mentally ill, and he was paranoid as a part of his illness that if he went home, that he would be put away. And, you know, we understand that, a part of, a part of that. So it did take two years for him to get trust that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, his mother set up a P.O. box for him and sent him... Uh, food cards and, and things that would fit in the box, like a fresh pair of socks and that sort of thing. And, and this family who lived nearby continued to help him. And so he got by. And after a couple of years, he decided that he was ready to trust. And he went home and met his mother on Mother's Day. Oh, my. Oh, my. After 14 years. Oh, my. And he's still at home. Uh, he's on some new medication, doing really, really well. And it's just a testament oh to sharing the story and sharing the information. And again, as I mentioned before, all it takes is one person, one person who who wants to get involved. Yeah. 
and that's, that's what happened. That's amazing. It, so it does, it, the resolutions to, to some of these stories, it does happen. Maybe not as much as we'd like, but they are happening. And probably there's, you know, there's more of the stuff going on every day that we just don't know about. But we have to continue to work on all of these cases uh, of things that are un, unsolved. Exactly. You know, because we know that when it does happen and if the person is still alive, you can point to something like these girls, this mentally handicapped um, man, and, and see the joy that the people get once something like this is resolved. Absolutely. And even though it's sad to say, um, every family of a missing person I've worked with who had a, a very unpleasant answer not like the two stories I shared, mm -hmm. but every single one of them said, I am so glad to have my answer because having the answer is better than living in the limbo that I have lived yeah. in for X number of years. Every single one, even the most horrific, brutal murders that you could imagine because that mm -hmm. illustrates how hard living with the ambiguous losses and, and why we need things like the retreat, um, which, by the way, after seven years of existence, there is still nothing like it in the entire world, to my surprise. Hmm. But, again, it's an illustration of, of why the work and the retreat is, is necessary. I didn't know that. That retreat that you have is the only of its kind. That we know of. Wow. Um, that, you know, we've had some people okay. uh, want to, to start up their own, but so far, no one has. Wow. Uh, Kelly, you're doing great work. Uh, this, this has been, a, this has been a, quite an experience for me. Um, I, I think that this has been an experience for my listeners. Uh, so why, you know, this is a wide-ranging interview that I don't know has ever been done like this anywhere before, but I think that this is exactly what the community needs. Uh, they need to hear about your son and his disappearance, and they also need to hear about all the work that, that people like yourself are putting in every day. Because I think what happens is a lot of people are out there, they're trying to help, you know, they're going to websleuths.com, your site, other places, and, but they don't really realize what goes on maybe behind the scenes and the things that you know somebody like you goes through every day and trying to raise money, legislation, all of this stuff. I, I think that people need to know more about the stuff so they're more aware. And the more aware they are, the more they can help you, who you know, a person like you is who's on the front lines. Well, Ed, and, and I thank you for for your kindness and and being willing to share the story and um, do such a a wonderful. Uh, respectful job, and it's such a, a sensitive, difficult topic at times. Yeah. Um, and, and you've been very kind, and yes, we, we certainly hope that it has the impact that we need it to um, on the listeners so we can get more help for these families and help them, uh, again, live the best life they can for whatever amount of time remains before they, they have their answers. Mm-hmm. Right. Anything else before we go? Anything you want to say? Uh, the floor is yours. Well, again, go to our website, projectjason.org. If you go to the forums, 
Uh, we have all the registered cases and other cases that we refer to as courtesy cases. Um, it, it is kind of a timeline of sorts. We, we post the news stories and other official bits of information uh, that may help people with their research and just becoming interested in missing persons. Um, again, there's also a part of the site with the posters. Um, actually, those are in two different places. And it, again, the How Can I Help page is very important to, uh, to reach out and help these families or help us to help them. All right, listeners, you have your marching orders. You know what needs to be done. And Kelly Murphy, uh, thank you for joining us on Unfound. You're welcome, and thank you to everyone who, who listened and, and to you, Ed, for your kindness. Thank you. And that was my interview with Kelly Murphy, mother of Jason Jolkowski and founder of Project Jason. You should know that she's not alone. If you remember from the previous episode with Mary Lyle, she also runs an organization called Center for Hope. And you can find that at hopeforthemissing.org. Likewise, you can find Project Jason at projectjason.org. To come back to what I mentioned before the interview played, after listening to that interview, I wonder about myself, am I doing enough? And hopefully during that interview, hearing her and how passionate she is about what she's doing, I ask you, do you think that you are doing enough? Because if you don't know, in the podcast world, the world of Podomatic and iTunes, true crime is one of the most popular genres. I think it's been helped by the show Serial. And then there is the most recent show called In the Dark that is covering the investigation into the disappearance of Jacob Wetterling. And of course, his remains were just discovered recently. Those two shows are some of the most popular shows, not just in the news and politics section of iTunes. They are two of the most popular shows on iTunes, period. Sports, politics, everything put together. So there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people who take an interest in these types of shows. And I think that we as people who do these shows, we have to remind our listeners that it's just not enough maybe to listen to these shows because you're interested because you love mysteries, because you love puzzles, because you love going on a site like websleuths.com, it would be nice once in a while if you could put your wallet where your ears are. I think that's what I heard from Kelly Murphy in this interview. And of course, that was just a very, very small part of what we talked about. But if you found yourself in that section where she talked about her retreat and how she'd like to do this and how she'd like to do that uh, if she had enough money, and if you found yourself nodding your head during that section, and if you felt uh, sympathy for what she's doing and you know the struggles that she ha has, and I'm sure that all of these kinds of organizations have, then you should help out. 
You should. Uh, you know, from a personal point of view, I think about it compared to all of the money that is put toward, for example, breast cancer awareness, like the Susan G. Komen organization, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that go to that organization. I'm sure that all of the money that goes toward helping families of people who have disappeared is minuscule compared to that. But you know what? All of it is equally sad. It's equally depressing. To me, these people who have disappeared and what the families have to go through is equal to what families that have to fight through cancer and family members who have died of cancer and and the people who remain. To me, it is all equal. But as Kelly said in that interview is that cancer affects how much of the population? 40%? And so people feel like if they donate money to a, a cause, a cancer cause, it's because eventually somebody in their family is going to get it or they themselves are going to get it. Whereas with disappearances, fortunately, they're still rare, but that doesn't make it any better. It still is something that people never get over. Just like people never get over a family member dying of cancer, family members never get over. Friends never get over the disappearance of somebody that they care about. So I hope you all remember that. I hope you ask yourselves if you're doing enough. And I know that I personally... I'm going to continue to ask myself that question as well. I remind you, you can find me on Twitter, Unfound Podcast. You can find me on Podomatic, iTunes. Please subscribe. Please give me a nice review if you feel like it. And I appreciate you listening. My name is Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Unfound.